I'm Danielle George. And I'm Mariano Hutter. And welcome to This Study Shows, a podcast from Wiley Research. This is our final podcast, Danielle, in season two. Boo. I'm sad and excited all at once. Uh, so far, we have looked at science communication from loads of different angles. Uh, anger. Public speaking. Making things emotional and personal. And the benefits of having fun and being creative. And being open and collaborating. So in this episode, we are focusing definitely on the future. I guess we're always talking about the future in a way, but what we mean specifically is that we'll be hearing from people who are trying to change the future of SciComm and those trying to communicate the science of the future itself. Okay, so let's get started. I'll let our first guest introduce herself. Hi, I'm Juliana Chan. I'm the publisher and founder of Asian Scientist magazine. Asian Scientist is a magazine produced by the Singapore-based Wild Type Media Group. And it is an award-winning science magazine that covers research and development news from Asia and Australasia. Juliana began Asian Scientist magazine as a side project back in 2011. It's come a long way since then. What happened was I began as a blogger. I, I just registered a domain name. It wasn't expensive and uh, I operated out of Starbucks and my living room in pajamas. So the cost was uh, extremely low. As a someone who likes to write, I thought I would write about something I knew, which was scientific research. And given that I'm from Asia and there was hardly any coverage anyway coming out of Asia, I thought I would fill a gap. So it was just me, the lonesome me, blogging away. And it was interesting that I asked one of my undergraduate assistants to help me write a couple of articles. Then she recruited her, her friends. And before I knew it, they had recruited each other and I had essentially an army of uh, 30 bloggers. So when I came back to Singapore, it, there was a professional publishing company called World Scientific Publishing became interested in my blog and they said, would you be interested um, in, in us investing in you and, and we will help you uh, convert this blog that you had been writing on into a professional magazine. And with their help, we gradually moved from somewhat of a hobby magazine into a legitimate magazine outlet covering science and technology. I guess that would be the full story and how we started humbly in 2012, I guess 2011, and where we are today 10 years later. As the title suggests, the magazine aims to champion the work of Asian scientists, from undergraduate students to Nobel Prize winners. This is one of the ways that they do it. Five years ago, we began a list called the Asian Scientist 100. And every year, five years in a row, we have come up with 100 scientists that we feature on the list. And now... We are in the fifth year, we have 500 scientists on it. So just as a start, these 500 scientists are of great interest to us. Uh, just to show you how important this list is, uh, and we did not even realize how, we, how, how much it would be uh, recognized, is that every year when we put the list out, regional newspapers, mainstream broadsheet dailies will cover it and talk about who was on our list. And in the Philippines, they even passed a resolution in the Senate to honour the eight scientists on our list that year. So it's, it's, it's just very, it's just incredible. And when you see them, you know, passing a declaration in the Senate, 
you just can't believe that your little list has uh, just taken on so much life of its own. And there are also other ways that Juliana helps brilliant Asian scientists get the recognition they deserve. I want to share with you a children's book series that we came up with as well, just to achieve the goal of promoting scientists from Asia. Um, It's a six-parter children's series called Asian Scientist Junior. So we came up with this series because I myself, I'm a mother, and I I just thought it would be fun for a start. And uh, secondly, it, it dawned upon me that if I could write a book on a quantum physicist for a four-year-old to understand, then nobody has any excuse that they can't understand the science because my four-year-old daughter is reading that book as well. So just to give you a, a, a sense, we have a book on a Japanese uh, Nobel laureate, Shinya Yamanaka, who came up with the concept of induced pluripotent stem cells, iPSCs. We're just really thrilled that we can bring his book to young young people interested in biology. But we also have uh, Tu Yo-Yo, for example. She won the Nobel Prize for her discovery of artemisinin. And she's the first Chinese woman to win the Nobel Prize. So in her research, she has saved an estimated 50 million people with malaria through her work, indirectly or directly. So it's just things like this that we feel proud about. And that's the angle we are coming at, which is the stories of the scientists and in an accessible manner that even a four-year-old can understand. You get the sense from Juliana that this is not just a job. It's a vocation and a cause that she is seriously passionate about. So it is extremely overwhelming when you look at the 500 names on your list. So five years of Asian Scientist 100. And you think to yourself, okay, They're going to have a book in the library of a female scientist and it is only always going to be that of a French female scientist who lived 100 years ago, Marie Curie. It's always going to be Marie Curie. No matter how, you know, how much we respect Marie Curie for having two Nobel Prizes, which is an incredible feat, that is a story that happened 100 years ago. There are stories happening today. But my job is to ensure that somebody someday will name Tu Yo Yo or Koske Morita or Udupi Rao. You know, one of these people will be, will be great. So my job will never be finished. And therefore, I have a mission that I can wake up to every morning. So Kasuke Morita is a Japanese experimental nuclear physicist who leads the research team that synthesized element 113, which is called Nihonium. And Udupi Rao, the other scientist Juliana mentioned, pioneered India's space program. One of my favourite bits of this chat with Juliana is the story of her ultimate career highlights so far. So as a science communicator, we have our special moments and, you know, peaks. I would say I had mine as a delegate at the World Economic Forum in Davos earlier this year. So I'm a young global leader and that gives me the rare opportunity to attend uh, Davos. I was at a session with uh, Angela Merkel on the stage and that was captivating. And suddenly I received a text from the WEF uh, management and they said, hey, could you come out now wherever you are? We need you to moderate a, and run a press conference on the virus. So I immediately left the auditorium and they were waiting for me and they said, 
we have a press conference waiting to go in 15 minutes uh, and we need a moderator and it'd be great if you can do it. I had uh, about a minute to decide if I was going to do it and they said, if you can't do it, it's fine. I said, you know what? I'm not prepared, but you will never prepare for an opportunity. You just have to take it. Um, we ran to the press conference session in a buggy as fast as we could. And I sat down next to Jeremy Farrar, director of the Welcome Trust, uh, Richard Hatchett, director of SEPI, who's running um, a large bit of the effort, the global effort. And of course, uh, Stefan Bansell, who is the CEO of Moderna. Moderna is one of the leaders in finding a vaccine. And when we finally sat down, the lights went on and all of the press, you know, Chinese press, international press was there. And we started to talk about what we knew, which was very little. What was the SEPI's effort? Uh, Moderna just had put together a, a very early developmental stage of the vaccine. So how far we've come in three months since Davos. But I would say that that was pretty much the highlight of my 10-year-long career as a scientific communicator, which is to run a press conference for the World Economic Forum at Davos for a yet unnamed virus that was causing a strange pneumonia in the city of Wuhan in China. So that was Juliana Chan, founder and publisher of Asian Scientist magazine. If you want to broaden your scientific reading and find out more about all the amazing work going on in Asia, go to asianscientist.com. And their website is fantastic. You can find out all about the top 500 Asian scientists. Do you have a a favourite Asian scientist from the uh, 2019 list, Danielle? I do, actually, yes. I mean, I loved um, the story of Adupi Rao, the Indian space pioneer um, that Juliana was talking about. But I think my favourite is um, Ubasi Sina, who is in India as well. And she's recognised for her work on quantum photonics and quantum computing. But she's also recognised for her work in outreach activities to get science to the general public in India. So she's doubly recognised. That's very cool. It's tough, isn't it? Because I looked at the list on asianscientist.com and I, I felt rather humbled and sheepish because I thought, oh, <laughs> God, I probably would have said Marie Curie or Rosalind Franklin or, I don't know, uh, you know, someone who is, is kind of long dead um, as my first go-to name a female scientist. And I thought, God, I need to educate myself better. It goes back to hashtag actual living scientists, isn't it? That we need <laughs> yes. to champion the people doing work now, not the ones who did it 100 years ago. Yeah. So if you were asked to name a famous female scientist, would it be Marie Curie then? <laughs> or maybe Rosalind Franklin, who was a researcher working on DNA at the same time as Watson and Crick, who were obviously awarded the Nobel Prize for their discoveries. I think it's difficult sometimes to not name a female scientist who was is famous because she was usurped to a Nobel Prize <laughs> by her male <laughs> colleagues. You know, not yeah, have, one yeah. who's had really great, you know, um, respect amongst her peers and got on with the work and done really well. <laughs> They're <Yeah>. not famous. <laughs> Obviously, actually, if people ask me uh, to name a 
a top female scientist, I would name Professor Danielle George at the University of Manchester. (laughs) Of course, of course. Who is my proper hero. (laughs) I think one of the things to take away from Juliana's story as well is that she didn't know where the seeds she was sowing were, were going to take her, but that organic beginning for Asian scientists came out of working together with other people who are passionate about science communication. I love her story because it feels so accessible as well. You know, she starts blogging in her PJs in her room, you know, <laughs> she goes to Starbucks. And, and I think it's something that so many people could relate to as well. And like you say, that sort of organically grown relationships in research, it really does show that we're stronger when we're working together. Okay, Marianne, how many times a week would you say you think about climate change? Oh, gosh. Um, Sometimes never, because my head is in the sand, and sometimes multiple times a day. And does it it depress you? Does it make you feel sad if if you think about it? Yeah, mostly, unless it's something like me feeling proud of myself having not driven somewhere or, you know, put the recycling out. The, the the kind of the big picture stuff does make me feel pretty dubious about the future. Okay then, so on this subject, I would like to introduce you to Per Espen Stockness. He's a Norwegian psychologist and economist. And the reason I want to bring him to your attention in this episode is because he is often called upon to talk about the subject of the planet's future. He's written a book called What We Think About When We Try Not To Think About Global Warming and has a lot to say about how we can reframe the climate change conversation to encourage people to engage with it again. Per Espen describes his area of research as learning how people empirically think in irrational ways. He explained that there are about three to 400 studies that have identified the psychological barriers to engaging with facts about climate. He summarised these barriers into what he calls the five defences, or the five Ds. I felt a need to really look into what is the internal dynamics that lie behind this backlash to the facts when it comes to climate in particular. The first is the the distancing, that we psychologically distance ourselves from climate change. The second is uh, the doom barrier that we've been so many times hearing about how what a threat this is, uh, and we get a bit used to it. Um, we disengage from it. The third is the dissonance barrier, where we know what we should do, but we do something else. So there's this cognitive dissonance that mm. makes us want to justify our behavior and change our thinking. Fourthly, there is the well-known denial that humans yeah, yes. are very well capable of, a deep psychological mechanism. And finally, we want to protect our identity and very often Climate science is perceived as threatening our lifestyles and the values that I based my political and professional identity on. So Mm. the distancing, the doom, the dissonance, the denial and the identity, these five barriers explain why people are so fact resistant to climate science. It's a yeah. tragedy, It's a tragedy, of course, I often call it the psychological climate paradox, that the more you throw hard facts at people, the less uh, some or most people uh, engage. Okay, so the five Ds, distancing, doom, dissonance, denial, and 
identity. There's, <laughs> yes. a, there's a D in there. Um, I can relate to all those. They they totally chime with how I think about difficult things as well. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about them. You can relate to at least a percentage of them, can't you, if not all of them? Mm, definitely. Per Espin describes humans as short-term thinkers, which is part of the reason we find it hard to make changes now that will have effects in 50 years or so. I wondered whether this is something that we can change or whether it's just something we're stuck with. Yeah, luckily, we know that humans are, when they're at least inattentive, very short-term thinkers. Um, and this is where this distinction between our different minds, the conscious or the subconscious, or what Donald Kahneman calls system one and system two, comes in handy. Because um, even though system one is instinct- instinctual and attention-driven and uh, easily jumps from emotion to emotion, uh, system two still holds a capacity in us to think long-term. And if we manage to frame the situation, um, if we manage to have a story, and if we manage to find language that helps us focus on the long term, humans are mm. also fully capable of thinking for the long term. We can only think about, you know, First Nations that have this seven generation principle. So they try to think at least three generations into the past and three generations into the future. Um, but also, um, scientists have been trained to use their system two, their conscious thinking, to think in terms of decades, centuries, long-term trends. And the language that science has been using doesn't really trigger the same mental models in the mind of the citizens as they do in the mind of the scientists. So what? So as, as scientists, what should we do then? Should, should we change our language or should we educate the people who aren't using this language to use that language? Well, we have to do the first uh, and we have to change our language. Um, unfortunately, uh, scientists have been relying on this idea that only we, if we can educate the public, if we can just throw the facts out there and inform everybody, and look here, this is the CO2 concentrations and PPMs, and this is the decadal effects, and this is the feedback, and this is the forcings, then eventually they would agree with the <laughs> consensus of the experts. Unfortunately, that is a superstition. So Per Espin talks about lots of different methods that climate psychologists have come up with for brain-friendly communication. And one that we dug down into was supportive framings, which means changing the messaging from doom and gloom to optimism and hope. So as scientists, our default framing has been to speak about the coming disasters. And scientists are used to thinking that facts and truth, people need to hear the blunt truth. So let's show them the graphs, let's tell them what this means. And then when that doesn't work, they've just tried harder. We know that more than 80% of climate communications since the 80s have been um, using the disaster framing. Now, that gets all the doom and the disaster backlash going that we spoke about. So there are three other frames that climate psychologists have discovered are really more engaging for most people. The first is to speak about this as a health issue. Uh, It impacts my family, my body, my community. Then it it, it has a much deeper emotional effect on people than a Mm. distant disaster. The second framing we can use is speaking about risk management. 
or the insurance. Insurance is a very effective frame when it comes to dealing with uncertainty. Here we have a frame where we actually set up the brain to think for the long term and to deal with the risk. So insurance is very effective both to legitimize why we need to do climate investment to reduce the, 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 the risk for uh, our climate burning down, but also a very good language in which to speak with financial people, insurance, bankers, uh, they are very well used to calculating risks. So after health and risk, there is the third, which is maybe the most important framing a scientist should embrace much more, I think, which is opportunity. That climate disruptions or uh, global weirding, whatever, is also an opportunity <laughs> to change our society towards much better modes of living. Um, we can have healthier um, foods. We can have um, less air pollution. Uh, we can um, get our bodies into better shape by walking and biking a little bit more and driving a little bit less. Um, we have opportunity for more local resilience with solar panels and energy storage and decentralized systems. And we have opportunities for um, reducing our material consumption by a circular economy. So it's a huge wave of innovation and opportunity coming. And scientists should at least speak for about three of these fantastic opportunities mm -hmm. for each of the times they mention the, the disaster threat. This is what we call the positivity ratio in psychology. At least three opportunities for each threat you come with. Okay, Perispin, you live your life removing those psychological barriers to, to climate action. And, and that, so you, you have a much more positive um, perspective on it. Does that have an emotional toll on you personally because you're facing up to the reality of climate change? I have been, yeah, deeply affected by climate science and um, t really taking it in, as most climate scientists do. Not having an emotional effect would mean, I would say, you're kind of numbed as a human being. Mm. Um, so these are deeply depressing facts. Yeah. Uh, but also being a psychologist, I've learned, worked with accepting these emotions as part of life and also not viewing negative emotions as negative in terms of pathological or wrong or something, rather than these emotions having the capacity to deepen life, uh, to, to, to bring on a broader specter of emotions and feelings. So the more you go into despair and really grieve these things, maybe the more sensitivity and happiness and vitality you're able to have on the other side. And this brings me to the issue of hope. Um, so I would say I'm not optimistic at all when it comes to climate, but still I'm full of hope. Mm. Uh, and this hope doesn't really depend on positive, optimistic outcomes, but it more is grounded in terms of who I am. I am an earthling. I love the sky. I love trees. I love the oceans. And being able to do things um, that are steps towards healing the situation, steps towards regeneration, steps towards shifting society around, these steps gives me joy just by doing them. So 
in the action itself, when I've gone through that grief and start to do action, I get a sense of satisfaction and happiness from the walking itself. It's time for our final guest of season two. Here he is. My name is James Honeybourne. I run an independent TV company. I've been a TV producer for many years. Uh, recent credits include Blue Planet 2 and before that David Attenborough's Africa series. Um, I no longer work for the BBC. I run my own company and we're in creative partnership with Netflix. Yep. So James is an expert in making natural history programmes. You might wonder whether he counts as a science communicator because he doesn't do the research himself. But let's be honest, he's got a huge, global, diverse audience and arguably, therefore, the most influential and important audience of any of us. So I wanted to start by asking him about his approach. How much does he focus on education and how much does he focus on entertainment? Um, in, in all wildlife documentaries, we, we, we would, as an industry, sort of uh, adopt the mantra of informing, educating and entertaining the audiences, but uh, not necessarily in that order. I think for me, um, when you're making television uh, that you hope will be watched by millions, then um, really the entertainment must come first because we've got to get bums on seats. We've got to, we want to share these amazing stories with as many people as possible. Um, I think it's a real happy happy notion that a good fact can be entertaining in itself. It can blow our minds and draw us into a story. And then it's often for us about the approach. You know, if we can explore the natural world through the eyes of a charismatic animal uh, individual uh, that immerses us into its world... We, we, we start to feel the, um, you know, the emotions of the story coming through to us. And that feels really important. We feel connected uh, to a world that we might otherwise not, not feel connected to. You know, if you were making a, uh, a film underwater, uh, that's a world that's cold, dark, scary, it's alien. It's, it's not a place which we immediately connect to. But if, if we can use those sort of entertainment um, Notions, then, the, uh, and 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 get a get an emotional response of, uh, from the audience. Then, then we really start to connect, and that, of course, uh, will ultimately help us care. And have you ever had a, a situation where um, either you sitting in the edit or a commissioner has said, "James, there is too much bad news in this. You are showing me too many pieces of litter. I want to see beautiful seahorses looking majestic in something that looks a little bit more like a, <laughs> you know, finding Nemo Neverland. Come on, get rid of that horrible stuff. Uh, we, we, as filmmakers, I guess we, we get to choose. And um, for me, there's a very fine balance to be struck between entertaining the audience and getting some of these messages across. And, and if, we, if we were to go too far um, and berate our audience, then simply we wouldn't get the numbers of people watching that we would otherwise. Um, so, so we have to earn the audience's trust first. We have to win that trust with entertainment um, and, and emotionally sophisticated storytelling to, to help them be involved and care in the first place. Um, uh, and that's especially important if you want to invoke behavioural change and create lasting impact. Have you ever come across researchers in the field or scientists who, who have been cautious about engaging with you and maybe feel nervous about getting involved with TV or media? 
I think when uh, the relationship between science and media works very well is when there's a common goal and when you're collaborating towards a common goal. So, for example, on many of our... Um, Marine expeditions, we like to collaborate with scientists, take scientists along on the expeditions because that allows us to um, authenticate what we're seeing, um, often share, share costs, it makes it more cost, cost efficient all around. And because we, we are happy to share our data if it, if it leads to you know, good science being, being discovered, being made. So working with science is, is really important to me. I, I'm a scientist... Uh, only by degree, but I have a huge passion for it. Um, but we collaborate with scientists all the time. You know, we always want to to turn the spotlight on their latest scientific discoveries. And sometimes we're lucky enough to to make our own. Um, if you saw Blue Planet Two and those giant trevallies leaping out of the sea and and catching turns in midair, that was behaviour that's never been recorded in science. So sometimes we're lucky enough to capture behaviours that that then actually become. Um, new science as well. So it's a two-way collaboration, we like to think. You've spent, I'm sure, lots of time in the field. What are some of your most memorable moments where you're kind of going, wow, this is the best job ever, or please, I want to go home now? I think whenever you're on foot with a really big animal, uh, uh, you know, one of the sort of charismatic megafauna, um, whether it's a, a rhino or maybe one of the meat eaters, you know, lions or polar bears, that's always, there are always moments where you're very, you're sort of hyper aware, you know, life shines very brightly. Um, you know that you need to keep your wits about you. Um, those moments are always exciting. Um, equally, um, floating in a remote coral atoll in the Caribbean over a singing humpback whale and having your, your rib cage rattle to the sound of a humpback singing just below you is just, you know, out of this world. The scale of it, the, the, um, the decibels, um, you know, it's a physical bombardment. It's absolutely amazing. And, you know, we're very lucky to occasionally experience such intense uh, moments. How do you feel about science? Are you hopeful for its future? I mean, we're in a kind of a strange era of anti-expert science denial, even though we're bombarded with more verifiable evidence-based research than ever before. I'm very excited for the future of science. The more we discover, the more there is to discover. You know, it's, it's a great thing. And um, the, the truth will out on science fact. You, you can't but you know, feel... I can't but feel um, hugely optimistic about the growth and the importance of, of science and how science is going to help us uh, overcome some of the greatest challenges that we face. Danielle, I must admit, I'm not always a fan when I watch natural history programmes and I feel like they're anthropomorphising all these different species <laughs> and kind of going, oh, look, here they are with their family going on a shopping <laughs> trip across the savannah or whatever it is. But I am aware that that's possibly my preferences and actually... If you can inspire someone with the natural world, if you can make them care and meet them where they are, that's not dumbing down, that's not doing a disservice to, to the animals that you're representing necessarily. It mm. is about engaging an audience and you look after things you care about and that's the bottom line. If you want the take-home to be, this is important, it's beautiful, it's special, we need to go out of our way to make it better than it is then I kind of go, 
Okay, yeah, you can have meerkats smiling at each other. That's fine. Yeah, yes. <laughs> it's that sort of emotive storytelling, isn't it? You know, giving a sense of purpose and pride um, in the environment. And I guess it's similar to what her husband was saying. You know, don't overdo the doom and gloom. Being positive isn't being naive. Yeah. You can still face up to the horrors of things and still be positive. And it's true of climate change, it's true of vaccination, it's true of approaches to pandemics, all sorts of things. If you want to change people's ways of thinking, if you want to change people's behaviour, you need to do it in such a way that works with how their minds work. Oh, Danielle, I've had such a blast making yeah. this study shows, speaking to all these amazing people around the world, yeah, doing fantastic too. science communication. I really feel like the future is bright. At all levels, it feels like there's a new culture of communication. The fact that the comms playing field isn't level, whether we're talking about misinformation, very well-funded lobbyists, or general anti-science rhetoric, that's not a reason to be demoralised. It's a reason that we need to step up our game. Whether that's training grade school children as science journalists, sharing your research in the form of a comic, being the comic, or engaging underrepresented communities in clinical research... There's yeah. so many opportunities to do good things. Absolutely. And of course, we can't do all of them. We just need to find the ways and methods that will work for us as individuals. But it's that spirit and willingness to try and experiment with communication in the same way that we do with our research. That's really, really important because you don't know where it leads you, do you? I mean, just start small and, and hone your skills. Just think about Juliana ended up chairing a press conference at Davos or Els Baton, who is now cited on research papers or Sarah McAnulty, who's beaming scientists into classrooms all around the world. Mm, definitely. Well, it just remains to say thank you again to you for listening to this study shows. We hope you have enjoyed it as much as we have. Absolutely. You can catch up on any episodes that you might have missed on your favourite podcast provider or visit thisstudyshows.com for more information on our guests from seasons one and two and to find transcripts and videos. And thanks, of course, to all the guests in this series who managed to join us remotely from all over the globe. Goodbye for now. Goodbye. This Study Shows is a Listen Entertainment production for Wiley Research. It's presented by Danielle George and me, Mariano Hotter. It's produced by Maddie Hickish. The executive producer from Listen Entertainment is Nick Minter. And the executive producer from Wiley Research is Samantha Green. <laughs>